We're back in Luke, believe it or not. Uh, the last time we were in Luke was 252 days ago. <laughs> uh, there is a website where you can put in two dates and find the number of days in between them. It's also nearly 22 million seconds, <laughs> just for those of you that are interested. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, there are worse things you can do. Um, yeah, we're in Luke and we're in chapter 10. Now, conveniently, when we left Luke, we left at the breaking point in Luke, which is Luke chapter 9, verse 51, is the, the sort of split um, where, where Jesus starts to, to head towards Jerusalem. So it was a good place to end. Hadn't planned to end for that long, but here we're back in Luke. Uh, let me read from chapter 10, and I'm going to read... I think verses 1 to 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So we're going to get our focus fixed on Jesus again as we dive back into Luke's gospel. As I said, at the end of chapter 9, there is a a break where everything shifts and Jesus' ministry that for the first nine chapters has been focused on the region of Galilee and and the surrounding towns, he is now turning his face towards Jerusalem. And for the remaining chapters of Luke, he is on this long journey to the cross. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And this passage is about mission. It is about being sent. The Greek word is apostolos, from which we get the the term apostle. Luke 9 ends with talk of discipleship, and Luke 10 begins with mission, because one leads to another. Disciples are on mission for the kingdom. And as we look through this chapter, I want to just pull out some some principles. Not all of it is applicable. Some of it was unique to that occasion, that particular moment in history when Jesus sent out that particular group. But there's a lot of it that can apply to mission throughout the ages. What's our mission? How do we live into it? What are our priorities? And importantly, what needs to change? What do we need to do differently to get on task with Jesus' mission as he builds his church? The first thing to note is the fact that in in verse 1 they are sent out two by two. They are together. They are communities, little mini communities going out on mission. It's not lone rangers. It's not one person going on their own. 
One person on their own will get discouraged very quickly in ministry. And in twos or in larger numbers, then a community can encourage one another. One person on their own can get isolated and threatened by the enemy if they're trying to do ministry alone. But together, they can encourage one another in the ups and downs. They can look out for each other. So this, right from the outset, we see Jesus sending them in pairs. And he does the same thing in Luke 9 with the 12 and in Matthew 10 with the 12. If you read the list of the 12 disciples in Matthew 10, they're all listed in pairs because they're going out to do ministry together. And another thing in Luke 10, 1 is that they go ahead of Jesus. One of the things that you'll hear theologians talk about is, is, I think they call it prevenient grace, where you, you get somewhere or you get to someone and you find God's already been working in their heart ahead of you getting there. And that's entirely true. But on this occasion, Jesus says to them, you know, he wants to go and move in these towns. Now, this, this is, I think this is an important principle. He wants to move in a certain town. He wants to move in a certain village. He, his plan at the end of the verse is that he's going to go to those places as well. And before he goes, he sends them to do the work of preparation, to do the work of breaking the ground, to do the work of making connections and and sort of building a a, a place then that he can come and work. When, you know, and and what if we used to go on this thing, BB camp on the advance party and the advance party was mad banter with it, where it'd be about five of the older boys would go with a few of the leaders and put up all the tents and and all the the big marquee and, and it was just, it was, powerful crack before the rest of the boys would come the advance party would go and what if Jesus sends out advance parties in the towns and villages to establish something that then he can come and work in and what if we are an advance party in our community and not only us but those who have gone before us and who are also still here who pray faithfully and who have lived out their Christian lives faithfully in a town an advance party because Jesus wants to come himself and move in power so he sends disciples ahead of him to prepare the ground and it's similar you know 10-1 is very similar to 9-1 if you have your bible open and you swipe back to to 9-1 Jesus calls 12 in in 9-1, but the the difference here is that we're not talking about 12 anymore, we're talking about 72, or your Bible might say 70. Just we quirk of translation that we're not quite sure exactly what it is, but the point is it's bigger. Jesus didn't try to do it on his own, and then he, he expanded from himself to 12, And then he expanded the 12 to 72. Ministry is not confined to one or two experts. It is meant to expand and it is meant to increase if the kingdom is to come. And there's a reason why Jesus wants this increase and he needs this increase in in people who are willing to be sent. And it's because in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful. You mathematicians out there who, who love nothing more than a good polygon, the Greek word is poly, many. The harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of it. And we can be oblivious to it. You know, this, this is a verse that I think should, 
or the, a statement of Jesus that I think should awaken us because you can very easily look around and think, well, nobody here is really interested in the kingdom. This is a hard place and people aren't really that keen on, on the healing that Jesus offers and no one is interested in it. But Jesus says, no, there is a harvest. There is a harvest and it is plentiful. And don't just look around and then presume to say no one's interested in the kingdom of God. Jesus said there's a harvest and either there is or there isn't. Either he's right or he's wrong. And I tend to think that he's right. There is a plentiful harvest. And as, as we lean into a community or into a place, there will be people who are curious. There will be people who are hungry. There will be people who need healing, who need what Jesus comes to offer. There is a harvest. It's not that there might be at some stage in the future or there was in the past. The harvest is plentiful. And it's about positioning ourselves to be able to access it and to, to lean into it and to live into it. But Jesus goes on to say, sadly, the workers are few. The workers are few. This word workers in Greek is the word from which we get our English word energy. This is hard work. This is not a hobby. This is not a sideline. This is hard graft. And Jesus expands the workers from himself to 12 to 72 and there's still not enough. He says we need more workers in the harvest field. Because there is such a plentiful harvest that if a small number of people try to harvest it, they'll burn out with exhaustion because there's so much pain and brokenness out there in society. We need more workers. There is a harvest. The workers are few. And one of the things that must go along with mission is prayer. In the same verse, verse 2, he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest. To send out workers. That's a, a frequent prayer on Tuesday night. Is to pray for laborers for the harvest. We live in a generation. And I've been thinking about this this week. Linda give me a podcast to listen to. And we'll maybe send it out on the, on the table group. So everybody can listen to it if they want. Just about how, how life is so atomized and fragmented. And, and people are so scattered. And work is so demanding. And life is so demanding. That, that, that people are limited. They're so limited in terms of capacity. We need more workers in the harvest field. More workers. And the mission, the success of a mission is not just determined by that energetic working in the harvest field, but also by prayer to the Lord of the harvest. And the answer is immediate. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. <laughs> They become the answer to their own prayer, as well as praying that more would be sent. Go, I am sending you. I'm sending you. If you've got a burden for the harvest, then you're probably going to hear the word go whenever you ask for workers to be sent into the harvest field, whatever context that may be in. So they're to pray, to pray for more workers and also to be the answer to that prayer themselves. But there's danger. Jesus says, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Up to this point, it sounded okay. But now it doesn't sound very appealing. Not even sheep among wolves. Lambs. I don't know much about shepherding. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that's not standard procedure to take your lambs and say, oh, well, there's a whole pile of wolves out there. Away you go into the middle of them. And I don't know what sort of lambs Jesus is talking about. So this is... 
militarized lambs. I thought maybe that he's sending out into the, into the harvest field. But no, they're, they're not equipped with armor and rocks. Jesus, or God in, in the scriptures, frequently refers to his people as lambs, as sheep. In Isaiah 40 that we were in at the start of Advent, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. And in Ezekiel 34, he talks about how we, he will shepherd his sheep. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Ezekiel 34:11. You see, the, the issue is not, it's not about the lambs. It's not like we're militarized, weaponized, radicalized lambs going out to try and survive among the wolves. The issue is not the type of lambs. The issue is the shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. And we can go on mission without fearing the wolves. The wolves are real and the risk and the danger is real. And the wolves snarl and bite and threaten. But there is protection from the great shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. And we must trust him for the provision and the protection that we need. Not only is, is laboring in the, in the mission field, laboring in the harvest field, hard work, hard graft. But there are risks, there are dangers, there are bites, and we need to know the protection of the shepherd. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Does anybody use a purse anymore? Or is it all Apple, Apple Pay and, and whatever? Like, um, don't take your phone, your bag or your sandals. Travel light. Now, this is one of those parts where Jesus says something different later on. In Luke 22, he says to the disciples, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. So at times, there are commands of Jesus, and there's a way to do mission in a particular context. And then in a different context, on a different time, it will look different. And mission has got to be catered for the context that people are in. Mission in Tandragi will look different from mission in Baghdad. All right, so Jesus tells people on different occasions to, to do things slightly differently. The principle is there. Do not take a purse, bag, or sandals. Travel light. Do not get bogged down by the cares of this world and the concerns that people have. And he says also, don't greet anyone on the road. I, I always, you know, as, as I read the Bible, I sort of chuckle because I think about people who insist on saying that they, and we talked about this when we talked about women in ministry, people who insist on saying, I take every verse in the Bible literally and I obey it. And I'm like, well, okay, if you're out for a walk this afternoon and you meet someone on the country road, you're not allowed to say hello because Jesus said so, if we want to take that literally. He's not, he's not saying to be ignorant. He's not saying to, to not say hello to people or what about you. What he, is, what he is saying here, the principle here is there is urgency. Don't get distracted. As you're going along the road to a village with a message to bring of the kingdom of God, do not get distracted along the way. So it's not about not waving at somebody or saying hi as you pass them by. It is having a sense of urgency about the mission. Do we feel the urgency? Or are we sedated by distractions? So do we need to take stock of how we use our time? 
we're so good. Just just listen out for it in conversation. Listen out for it and, and you'll hear it every single day. We're so good at declaring how busy we are. <laughs> because how busy we are lets everyone know how awesome we are. And how the whole world would stop turning if we stopped doing all those things that we do. We're so good at, at, at declaring busyness. I think we should flip that around and we should get proud of being able to say, I did nothing last night. I just chilled. And the world kept turning. And I just read a book and drank some coffee. I went for a walk. I, I, you know, we have to get better. There, there, was, uh, there was a guy who used to, used to preach and listen to Dale. He was a Methodist. It was Derek Laverty. And uh, I can remember Derek one night saying, uh, talking about the gift of just wasting an hour. In other words, just doing nothing. Stopping from our frantic running and busyness. Do we need to take stock of our use of time and weed out a few distractions? There has never been a time in history when there have been so many distractions and when people have been so good at picking distractions up. I remember after the, not the most recent World Cup, but the one before, who did France play in the final? Croatia. Croatia. I remember watching the final on a Sunday afternoon and it was raining and we watched the match and it was, was it 4-2, 4-1? 4-2. over here. And I remember watching it and watching them lift the trophy and turn the TV off and, and literally within about 30 seconds after a month of football, I didn't watch all of it, but I watched a fair bit. And after a month of football and, and getting to this big climactic moment, turning off the TV and thinking, what was that all about? You know, nobody cares anymore. All the talk and all the discussion and all the punditry, it's all just gone. But we can get so sucked into these whirlwinds of, of distraction. What is it for you? Is it sport? Is it exercise? Is it retail? Is it entertainment? I sometimes do a thing with my, my upper sixth where, where you know, I'll, I'll realize that I'm boring them to death with what I'm teaching them. I'm just driving them mad doing some horrendous organic chemistry and, and I'll ask them what are you watching on TV these days and they just burst into life oh sir I watched six episodes of Yellowstone last night you've got to watch it you've got to get that it's so good and, and like this, this girl I did this the other day and she was just beaming she just suddenly got this shot of energy and enthusiasm and I'm like six <laughs> in one night Watching these things over and over again, we get distracted. Nothing wrong with, with, with moderate amounts of entertainment, of course, but we just get sucked into this whirlpool that we get lost in and waste massive amounts of time. Jesus has a mission that is so urgent that he emphasizes the extreme urgency of it by saying, don't stop and get in conversation along the way. Don't get distracted. And when we get there, we are to bring peace in verses 5 and 6. And, and notice that the peace comes with us and the peace leaves with us. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it'll return to you. You bring it and you take it away again. We carry peace. One of the, the concepts, one of the great concepts in the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole is shalom. This, this Hebrew word for peace that just connotes total well-being. Total well-being. Through every part of your life. 
when we say, when we greet someone, we might say hello, which literally from old English means health to you. Hello, it's a shortened version of health to you. And whenever Jews greet each other, they say shalom. It's a blessing, well-being. May God's well-being be on every area of your life and your health and your family and your business. Shalom. And Jesus says, we carry that. And if people are going to know about it, we have to bring it to them. We have to be among them. We can't launch shalom missiles from long range. We have to be among people. You're to go to a house. You're to go to where people are and you bring that shalom and you bring that well-being into their troubled lives. The problem is we don't have time. (laughs) We don't have time. We're so busy and so distracted that we don't have time to be to position ourselves with people. Jesus goes on in verse 7 to say to them, stay there. Stay there. Just content yourself with staying put. Get into a place. Find that, that place where you can establish yourself and stay there. And part of the ministry is to eat and drink. Praise God. Eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. When you enter a town, you're welcome to eat what is offered to you. Jesus says, establish yourself. Be present. Church, we are not present. We're not. (laughs) We used to be quite present on a Friday night. But we're not really present. We're not. And we carry the shalom of God, the well-being of God that brings order out of chaos in our lives and can bring order out of the chaos of other people's lives. We carry that and if we would bring it and establish ourselves and be present, we could share it with people, but we can't just chuck it in from a distance. We can't throw it out the, 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 the car window as we drive through. And I really think we need to, as a church, we need to be praying about this and thinking about this. We're we're trying to to lean into this in prayer on a Tuesday night. What does the future look like? What do we do? How do we establish presence in the town? That's not just Sunday morning, Tuesday night, and whatever clients come for for counselling. How do we establish a more permanent presence? We need to pray into this because it's urgent. It's urgent. We can't share what we've got if we're not in contact with other people's lives. And I do believe it's really important for us as a church to be seeking God about this and to be listening. I'd love to walk in on a Tuesday night and find three or four people all saying, I really feel God stirring this person. Like me too. And God's showing me that and, and that we're coming together and that we're hearing God corporately saying, here's how we can establish presence. Not big events, not, not just the odd massive thing show that we put on, but face-to-face regular interaction with people. It's, it's that picture again of the salt being rubbed into the meat if it's going to do what it needs to do to preserve the meat. And Jesus gives them a ministry and he gives them a message. The ministry is to heal the sick. Now, I don't think this is just healing of physical illnesses. 
In the Gospels, Jesus healed people of many physical illnesses and it was really visible and really obvious and it drew attention to his message. And he gave the disciples the authority and the power to do the same thing. And I believe that we today should pray for the sick. Definitely. I do believe God heals people. I do believe that the church should pray for the sick. I don't believe that everyone gets healed. But I believe the command is to lay hands on the sick and to pray for them. But I think this is more than just physical illnesses being healed. There's a lot of sickness in the world and in our community that is not physical. There is the sickness of of mental health issues. There is the sickness of sexual confusion. There is the sickness of addiction. There's the, 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 the sickness of emotional damage from bad relationships, traumatic family situations. There's the sickness of loneliness and the sickness of just plain old-fashioned shame about sin. Makes people sick. There might not be a physical manifestation of it, but these are all sicknesses in society that I think Jesus sends us to heal. Sin in in the scriptures is frequently likened to a sickness. I passionately believe that Isaiah 53.5 is not about physical healing. By his wounds we are healed. You read that verse and the verse before. The problem is not physical illness. It's transgressions and iniquities and sin. (laughs) And by his wounds we are healed. We have a healing that we can bring to people who are sick because of their sin and the sin of others. And Jesus said himself in Luke 5, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And he then again connects that, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There is a sickness called sin, and there is a healing for it. So I believe when when he says, heal the sick, he's talking much more The main context in that passage is physical illness, but I do believe it's much wider than that as we apply it to ourselves and our mission. And there's a message, the ministry to bring healing to those who are sick in whatever way, and the message that the kingdom of God has come. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. If anyone ever asks you, what is the gospel? That, according to Jesus, is the gospel. Over and over again, And if you read, next time you're reading through Matthew, highlight, I think in nearly, I think in every chapter but one of Matthew, he mentions the kingdom of God. He mentions love a lot and he mentions sin and he mentions all sorts of things. But the, the overriding, driving force of Jesus' ministry is the kingdom of God has come. You don't need to be ruled by oppressive satanic rulers anymore king jesus has come there is a new king in town it is not the kingdom of god is not a geographical region it is the rule of god in people's hearts and lives it is his power saving people from other forces that would oppress them and oppose them And this is the stuff that Jesus has been doing. He has, for nine chapters, been healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he calls us as his followers to do the stuff that he did. Again, that's discipleship. To have the focus that he had and to do the things that he did. 
But there will be rejection. Jesus said in, in verses 10 and 11, when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. What do you do when you're rejected? The disciples don't argue. They don't fight. They don't coerce people. They don't pressurize them. They shake the dust off their feet and they move on. And, and this, you know, shaking the dust off your feet was actually, there's a, there's a lot in this. Because a Jew who had visited Gentile territory, so, so Jewish person living in Israel who had left Israel and visited a Gentile nation or a Gentile place, when they come back into Israel again, what they would do as they come back onto Israel Israelite territory is they would lift up their shoes and they would shake off all the dust because they don't want to bring dirt dust from a Gentile non-Jewish non-people of God region into the land of Israel so they would shake the very dust off their feet and Jesus is saying and and this I think there's there's a lot going on Jesus is saying, if you go somewhere with the gospel of the kingdom of God and it is not welcomed, you shake the dust off your feet because that place is no longer Israel. Even though that town may geographically be in Israel, even though those people may be descended by blood from Abraham, Jesus says, if they reject the kingdom of God, they're not Israel. Shake the dust off your feet because even though you've been in a town that on the map is in Israel, you have been in what now is being declared. That's a Gentile town. That is a non-Jewish, non-Israelite, non-people of God place. So just shake the dust off your feet the way you would coming in from a Gentile country. To be Israel is to follow Jesus. To be the people of God is to be centered on him and to receive the message of the kingdom of God. And to reject the message of the kingdom of God is to then say, I don't want to be part of the people of God. I don't want to be part of Israel. And to reject it is pretty serious. In all of history, in literature, in the Bible, there is one town (laughs) that is known for its wickedness more than any other town. And it's Sodom. The, the, the name just screams evil, perversion, wickedness, and absolute terrifying judgment. And Jesus says, and I don't think there's a scale of, of judgment that he's trying to tell us about here. I think he's using a figure of speech to make a point. He says, those people who reject the message of the kingdom of God, for them, on, on the final day, on, when judgment is meted out, they will be worse off than Sodom. That's unimaginably bad. To reject the message of the kingdom. To reject the message of the kingdom is the most serious of sins. And he goes on to to mention two other cities, Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament. Again, two other hotbeds of wickedness and evil. And he basically says to the local towns where he has been ministering and where he's sending these disciples with the message. He says, if the miracles that you have seen had been done in those Old Testament towns, even they would have repented. And you're not. To reject the kingdom 
is a serious, serious thing. Because to reject it is to reject him. Whenever people reject the messenger, they are also rejecting the one who has sent him. And the disciples, as we get towards the end of of the passage for today, they, after they've gone out on their mission trip, they come back and they are absolutely lit. Joy fills their hearts as they come back to Jesus with their report and say, even the demons submit to us in your name. It's not only, like he he said, go out and heal the sick and they have found as they have gone out that even the demons have have listened to them and have had, had to be subject to their authority. And Jesus responds with one of the most awesome and unexpected, I think, verses that you get in Luke. As they come back and say, the demons submit to us in your name, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall. Now, if you need a motivation to get on mission, this might be it. Their ministry, as those 72 went into the surrounding towns and villages and healed the sick and proclaimed the kingdom of God, Jesus gives them a glimpse into what was going on in the heavenly realms at the same time. Now, Satan was cast out of heaven long before this. So he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is is that it's, it's, it's like in, in Revelation where you can see the heavenly vision and, and what's going on in heaven and you can see what's going on on earth. And more, more pertinent is, is in Ephesians where Paul talks about the heavenly realms where these principalities and dark powers operate. And, and Jesus is given a glimpse into that and he's basically saying to, to the disciples, as you were proclaiming the kingdom, As you were bringing health and healing to the mentally ill, the emotionally sick, the lonely, the sin sick, the broken. As you were doing that on the ground, I was seeing Satan being cast down from the heavenly realms. There's a direct connection. As you were preaching God's reign, I was watching Satan being displaced from his position of authority. That's awesome. That as we get busy about following what Jesus has said, Satan gets toppled off his throne as a result. In people's lives and in in families, in, in communities where he has been established and where he calls the shots. As these 72 go, we don't know their names. Okay, at that point, I don't know how long Jesus had been ministering, but it it wasn't very long, maybe a couple of years. These guys have not got some profound life of theological education behind them. And he sends them and they go in faith with the good shepherd with them and they bring the message and they heal the sick and Satan falls from his position. Now that is good motivation to get on mission. And Jesus in the next chapter will go on to talk about plundering the strong man's house. Going into those places where Satan holds sway and and leading people out of captivity. That's the picture. That is what mission involves. Just as lovely as as Jesus is, as he's watching, they're going and he's watching, Satan comes tumbling down. See, when this kingdom comes, other kingdoms must fall. 
And he says in verse 19, and I think he's loving this. If his tongue was ever stuck in his cheek, this is it. He says to them, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, why do I think Jesus is loving this? Well, this is a quote from a psalm. And back in Luke chapter 4, Satan quotes the psalm to Jesus. This is where I wish it wasn't like about a year since we did Luke chapter 4. But Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness and he says, Jesus you know, stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. It'll be awesome. You'll draw a crowd. Millions will come to your ministry. For it is written, Satan quotes scripture. Just bear that in mind when people start opening their Bible and chucking verses at you to have a fight with you. Satan quotes scripture. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Go on, Jesus. That's Psalm 91. That's verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 91 being quoted in Luke 4, 10 and 11 by Satan. And at that moment, I can imagine Jesus saying, you are going to regret that. <laughs> You're going to regret, regret twisting my words and throwing them in my face. Because the very next verse of Psalm 91, after the verse that Satan quoted to Jesus, the next verse says, you're going to trample on serpents. <laughs> Muppet. <laughs> and Jesus is just loving this. As he, as he then wheels, I'm sure he's just been waiting and sitting on it. And he wheels this out to the disciples and says, yeah, this is what happens to serpents whenever you go onto their territory. Reminds us as well of Genesis 3, the trampling, the crushing of the serpent's head. And this Psalm, Psalm 91, is all about God's protection. You think of these lambs going out among the wolves. And this is, this is who they've got. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So Jesus says, nothing will harm you. <laughs> Nothing will harm you. You don't need to be afraid of, of going out among wolves. You don't need to be afraid of the, the serpent. You don't need to be afraid of the demons. Nothing will harm you. But then he cautions them. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Don't let that be the source of your joy, that you have this authority, that you have this power. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And there's a constant thing that Jesus does throughout his ministry. He wants the miracles and the signs to point to greater things and greater truth. He doesn't want people obsessed with the miracles themselves. He says this, be careful that your rejoicing is not based on your ministry, but that it's based on the fact that your name is written in heaven. One of the greatest risks of ministry and of mission is that ministry becomes our greatest joy and purpose instead of Jesus being our greatest joy and purpose. Where we start to derive our identity and our value from what we're doing and from how it's going, and we rejoice in how it's going, and yes, there's times to do that, but Jesus says, don't let that be the source of your, your primary joy. Let me be the source of your primary joy. Satan's been cast down from heavenly realms. 
There's a book in heaven with your name on it. You're in, he's out. That's worth singing about. And finally, in verse 20 or 21, Jesus is full of joy. Imagine that. Our ministry can bring joy to Jesus. As we go and as we obey and as, and as we th- see things happen and then we return to him, he's full of joy in the Holy Spirit and he praises his Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, that's the Pharisees that have been in his face for, the, for, for nine chapters, and you've revealed them to little children. These 72 didn't have the wisdom, didn't have the, the learning of the Pharisees, but they had a revelation of God. There's no room for the arrogant. It has to be that, that faith and that obedience of stepping out in faith into the mission. I thought about this song this morning. I was listening to it upstairs. There's an oldie. Robin Mark recorded it. I don't know if he wrote it, but he recorded it in one of those Mandate albums from, from back in the day in Belfast. The song called Outrageous Grace. And it starts with the line, there's a lot of pain, but a lot more healing. And as I thought about all those different sicknesses in society, all of those, there's so much pain. A lot of it isn't physical at all. And in fact, a lot of people who who suffer these various different pains, if you were to go and say, we can heal one of your pains, do you want us to heal the physical pain or the mental trauma or the emotional hurt? They probably would put the physical pain lower down the list. It's the other things that torment them more. There's a lot of pain, but there's a lot more healing. Jesus, the way he put that is the harvest is plentiful. But the unfortunate thing was that the workers were few. We have a mission. We have this shalom, peace. And we have this offer of healing. We have good news of the kingdom of God. We have a great shepherd. But church, please join with me in prayer. Now and on Tuesdays and in the privacy of your own rooms at home where you seek God and and start to really lay hold on him for workers and for a revelation of how does this church be present. So that we could move forward and move forward in complete unity. And say, yes, we are hearing God. And we are presenting ourselves in a community to bring that peace and that good news and that healing. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your spirit. We ask, Lord, as a church that we would, we would know your leading. We ask for a, a supernatural just scattering of your word into the hearts of of all of us all of us lord that we would we would start to come together on a tuesday night or a sunday morning and and we would all be led in the same way hearing the same voice burdened for the same thing and able to move forward in confidence that our father has spoken show us lord i pray how do we be present to this community and whatever other communities and workplaces and, and scenarios that are represented here, how do we be present? Lord, give us the urgency. Just an intense sense of urgency. 
thank you that you've commissioned us. Thank you that you've called us and equipped us. Lord, forgive our hesitance. Forgive our, just our slothfulness at times, Lord. Reveal your heart to us, we pray. Amen.